Please take your Bible and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy chapter 19, I believe this is on page 151 in the Pew Bible, if that's what you're using, the Bible under your chair or the chair in front of you. Deuteronomy chapter 19, the book of Deuteronomy is quoted more than any other Old Testament book in the New Testament. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he quoted from Deuteronomy three times. Uh, and three different passages from Deuteronomy. Paul quotes Deuteronomy multiple times. Peter quotes Deuteronomy multiple times. We could go on and on. What I'm saying is Deuteronomy is a super important book in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And as I mentioned last week, the heart of Deuteronomy is chapters 12 through 26. And as I mentioned last week, that's too long of a passage, so we're dividing it in half. Still eight chapters today. We're doing chapters 19 through 26, seeking to summarize uh, this very important section of our Bible in a way that will help us all to walk with Christ. So please follow along as I read chapter 19, verses 1 through 10 of the book of Deuteronomy. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession, so that any manslayer can flee to them. This is the provision for the manslayer who, by fleeing there, may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore I command you, you shall set apart three cities. And if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has sworn to your fathers and gives you all the land that he promised to give to your fathers, provided you are careful to keep all this commandment which I command you today, by loving the Lord your God and by walking ever in his ways, then you shall add three other cities to these three, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies, and he flees into one of these cities, Then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. Obviously an unusual passage for us to read together, but one full of biblical truth, obviously, and um, I'll explain it a little bit in a moment. Perhaps some of you are familiar with this book that I read as a child, perhaps had read to me as a child, and that I read to one of my children at breakfast this morning. It's called If Everybody Did. I read it at breakfast because I had it out for this illustration. But it's called If Everybody Did, and it's about what it would be like if everyone lived selfishly and did whatever was right in their own eyes. So what if everybody stepped in mud and walked wherever they wanted to walk? Well, your whole house would be 
muddy. What if everybody slammed the door? Well, eventually the door is going to fall off the hinges. And so what if, uh, is essentially describing how chaotic life would be if everyone did things like making messes and slamming the door instead of doing what's selfish or even you know, perhaps normal to us, done without thinking, the book is instead encouraging us to consider the unintended consequences of our decisions, to consider the effect of our decisions on other people's lives and our fellow citizens. Perhaps we could say the book, If Everybody Did, is the book of Deuteronomy for children, or at least it's Deuteronomy 12 through 26 for children. It's helping you think about how chaotic life would be if you just lived your own way as the people of God. Our passage, Deuteronomy 19 through 26 today, again, the second half of this long section of laws in Deuteronomy, tells us that walking in God's ways means loving other people. Walking in God's ways means walking in love, in other words. So, as a child of God, your responsibility to this passage is to walk in love particularly in love for neighbor. Last week we talked particularly about love for God. And I explained uh, a few weeks ago that God has made us as Christians, as he had made Israel his treasured possession, now he has made us as Christians his treasured possession. He chose Israel out of all the nations of the earth, not because of how big and beautiful they were, but because of his love. And we saw several reasons then that His people should obey the Lord, that we as Christians should obey the Lord then. And so if the first 11 chapters of this book were written to motivate God's people to obey the Lord, chapters 12 through 26 tell us how to obey the Lord, how to walk in his ways. And last week in chapters 12 through 18, we saw that God cares deeply about how we worship, who we worship, how we worship, where we worship, and so forth. And that we should follow the spiritual leaders that God has given us. In today's passage, the focus turns from loving God, so that's chapters 12 through 18, to now loving your neighbor, that's chapters 19 through 26. And I explained a little bit about how uh, these laws in chapters 12 through 26 are essentially taking the Ten Commandments and giving clarity to them, or examples of them, and applications of them. So it's good to say, love your neighbor. Let me give you a few examples. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't lie, don't steal, don't covet what they have. Like when your neighbor went to Disney ten times last year, don't covet that. Instead, walk in God's ways. Well, those five laws of the Ten Commandments that I just gave can be expanded on even further. And that's what we have today in chapters 19 through 26. These are primarily about our relationships with each other. So again, you're asking the question... How do I walk in God's ways? And I would say this passage gives us four general answers. I'm combining those five of the Ten Commandments and I'm just giving into four. I tried to make this as simple as possible, trying to use as simple a language as possible so that you can understand, generally speaking, what this passage is teaching, even though I'm not going to scratch every issue you have about what every individual law in this passage means. So the four ways that we love other people, the first is we protect human life. Protect human life. And this is where the passage I just read, Deuteronomy 19, 1 through 13, comes into play. I think this passage tells us implicitly just how important human life is to God. And then implicitly just how important it should be to us. 
And perhaps you remember about seven years ago, about this time of year, I think it was the last couple days of May of 2016, a boy was at the Cincinnati Zoo and he fell into the gorilla enclosure. Do you guys remember that story? I think the gorilla's name was Harambe. And the gorilla took the boy and grabbed him, if I remember, by his arm or by his shirt, maybe by his leg, and was dragging him back and forth through the zoo gorilla enclosure. And dozens, if not more, terrified people were there watching it live, and people video recorded it, and so you can watch it on YouTube if you so please. It's a terrifying video. I had children that size and that age when that happened, and perhaps you remember what they had to do. They had to kill Harambe, this silverback gorilla, in order to save the life of the boy. And what would you expect to happen when you kill a gorilla if you were on the internet? It would explode, and that's exactly what happened. The internet exploded with rage that you would kill an endangered gorilla because of some careless three- or four-year-old boy who leaned too far over. And I would simply say, with all due respect to beautiful gorillas that God made, human life is so much more valuable. Because there were two creatures in that cage, and one of them was made in the image of God. And so the zookeepers made the right decision that day. And so what you have in this passage in 19 through 13 that I read is what you should do if somebody accidentally kills a human life. Again, showing the tremendous value of a human life. You should run to a city of refuge. Now, we don't have cities of refuge this side of the cross. This side of the cross, Christ is your refuge. This side of the cross, we live in in civil governments. Thankfully, we live in a civil government, at least. There are places in the world where that is not the case, clearly. You know, spiritually speaking, the church is the city of refuge for spiritual danger, and you come here to get the help you need to help you flee spiritual danger. But physically speaking, we don't need these cities anymore. But it still shows you just how important a human life is to God. That even though you did not mean for your axe head to fall off and go and kill the guy who's working next to you, you're not going to lose your life over that because uh, your own life is of so, so much value. Of course, you saw the second half of that, though. Verses 13, uh, 11 through 13 shows the contrast. But if you did hate your neighbor and then you killed him, well, you're going to lose your life as well because you defrauded that person his life. You devalued the image of God in that person. There are multiple other examples in this passage uh, that show the value of human life. Maybe if you read through this passage this week in anticipation of this sermon, which I always commend to you do, and is one of the primary reasons we publish a sermon card every three months. If you read this passage, maybe one of the passages that made you kind of scratch your head would be chapter 20, verses 15 through 18, which is where, uh, practically verse 16 through 18, which is where Moses instructs the people, the Lord through Moses instructs the people how to handle the wicked nations that are currently occupying the land that God has promised to his people. And what they're to do is to go in and cut those nations off to, in other words, kill the inhabitants of those nations. Now, again, I want to quickly add that we in the church do not fight against wicked nations in this way anymore. We're on this side of the cross. We don't use weapons of war for the purposes of God. We work for people's conversion in the world instead of avoiding uh, or while avoiding the attractiveness of their sin. So there's a significant difference there because of being on this side of the cross. 
But perhaps as you, you know, wrestle through and scratch your head and kind of feel the angst of that passage, like why in the world would God say to cut off these wicked nations? I want to just think, uh, give you an example of another passage in the Bible where this scenario basically plays itself out exactly the same way. And that would be in Genesis 6 through 9. What happens in Genesis 6 through 9? You have Noah's ark. Perhaps some of you grew up in a bedroom that had Noah's Ark pictures and Noah's Ark toys and Noah's Ark, you know, I don't know what those things were called, at the top of the ceiling. It's not quite wallpaper, but you know, that idea, maybe you, maybe you had straight up Noah's Ark wallpaper in your bedroom growing up. Noah's Ark is a bloody story. It's a lot of people dying. Why were they dying? Because of their rebellion against God. Because of their straight-up refusal to submit to God. And so what you have when you come to a passage like this one is just the same kind of judgment that every single person in the world deserves because of their rebellion against God. Because of their high-handed rebellion or their passive-aggressive rebellion against God. You know, we don't all rebel in the same way. But we all do rebel against God. So whether it's active, aggressive rebellion against God, I'm going to do whatever I want, I don't care. In fact, I know what God says, and I hate God, so I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Or just a, I'm just living my life. I'm just trying to be happy. What's so wrong with that? And whatever form your rebellion takes, our rebellion deserves the wrath of God. And that's what this passage is describing here, is that these cities deserve the wrath of God because of their high-handed rebellion against Him. And it's the same judgment that everyone is going to receive on the last day who does not put their faith in Christ. And so if you're here and you have never repented of your sin, of your rebellion and your idolatry and your wickedness before God, we urge you today to repent of your sin, to turn in faith to Christ who is your true city of refuge, who will save you from the judgment that you deserve because of your sin. And so while we live on this side of the cross, we don't destroy wicked nations like chapter 20 told the Israelites to do when they went into the land that God gave them. We do, indeed, pray for the conversion of those who are outside of Christ, who are currently resisting Him and worshiping gods of their own making, even if that God of their own making is simply a day on the beautiful lake. Or multiple times this week where I talk to people and urge them to come to our worship service today because there wasn't really time to uh, share the gospel in full. So I kind of like fast forwarded to, you know, if you come to our worship service, you'll hear the gospel there. And in one of the cases, I even had to say to the guy, look, I realize that if you come to our worship service, you may think like none of this is plausible. Like Christianity is too implausible for me to even begin to get my mind around. I understand that. I want to urge you to come anyway. I haven't seen him yet. If, if you're out here, and I just can't see you through the lights or something, I'm sorry. But I'm pretty sure he didn't come. Why? Maybe it was too implausible. Maybe he was too busy. Maybe he is on the lake. I don't know. All I'm saying is we need to be telling people The judgment is coming as it was coming for the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. These people, as there was judgment for them, there is judgment for all who are outside of Christ. And so we urge you today to believe in him. Chapter 21 follows on that same 
in that same vein where it talks about unsolved murders in chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. But what you notice in verse 8 is that the goal of following the particular legislation that Moses gives here, through the, that the Lord gives through Moses, is that atonement would be made for sins. That word is, is used multiple times here in chapter 21. Atonement means to cover over. And particularly, we as Christians believe in what we call penal substitutionary atonement. The penal is the word penalty. So there is a penalty for sin. Jesus takes that penalty by being our substitute. So penal substitutionary atonement. By Jesus substituting his life for ours, taking the penalty that we deserve because of our sin and rebellion, he then atones for our sins. So when Jesus died on the cross and bore the wrath of God, that dealt with our sin. He was standing in our place if we simply put our faith in him. Chapter 22 is perhaps filled with some of the most unusual laws in Deuteronomy. Let me give you a couple examples that aren't really that weird, but I want to kind of show how they have continuing relevance this side of the cross uh, as they are essentially extended through the cross to us as Christians. So chapter 22, verse 8, for instance. I'll just point out here. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. So in the society, the ancient Near Eastern society in which Moses was writing, most houses were flat. They had flat roofs. You still see these in certain places. Maybe you have a flat roof or a relatively flat roof. If you have a flat roof, perhaps you have a staircase to get up to the flat roof. And on that flat roof, then, maybe you could entertain dinner guests. And maybe somebody would laugh really hard at one of your hilarious jokes and accidentally fall off the roof and die. And what Moses was telling God's people to do was prevent that by building a fence. A parapet is basically a low fence. Build a fence around your roof so that somebody, while they're eating their dinner with you, doesn't fall off and die. Because if you don't build that fence and someone falls off and dies, you're responsible. You have shed innocent blood. Most of us don't have flat roofs. We do live on this side of the cross, but I do think that this, the idea behind this law is still... Love your neighbor. And what are some ways that we on this side of the cross can love our neighbors in a similar way? Things like putting a fence in front of a staircase if you have a toddler in your home so the child doesn't fall down and hit their head on a concrete floor. Or what about putting a fence around your pool? And we could go on and on. I'm just saying the specific law we don't need to follow. The 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 cross then takes that specific law and, like I said, it kind of extends it. It kind of reforms it into love for your neighbor looks like continuing to protect innocent human life. So wear seatbelts. Insist your children wear seatbelts. Follow speed limit laws so that you don't take innocent life. This whole passage I've read so far is taking the command, do not murder, and applying it in a whole host of different ways, showing the value of human life. And so we as God's people need to protect human life. I heard recently someone say that maybe down the road in human history, let's say 50, hopefully longer, maybe 100 years down the road, people will say, Christians? Oh yeah, they're those people who don't kill their babies or their elderly people. Aren't they weird? God forbid that we should have to live in a society like that, but we also know there are societies 
like that on both ends who kill their babies and they kill their elderly. And I had this conversation with one of my sons, my, my eldest son this past week, and I kind of played devil's advocate. I said, don't you think it would be better if we killed everybody who was 90 and up? Like, wouldn't that save money and save the resources in nursing homes so you can care for other people who desperately need their help and their quality of life is so much higher? And he's kind of going like, oh no. And I said, obviously, terrible thinking. Obviously, that's wrong. Sinful thinking. We as Christians see the dignity and the beauty of human life from the womb all the way to the grave and seek to defend the rights of the defenseless. And so pray that we as as the people of God would protect human life and seek to do that in every way. Secondly, respect God's intent for marriage and sexuality. Respect God's intent for marriage and sexuality. This is another key theme in this unit. The second half of chapter 22 is entirely about sexual immorality and how to identify whether someone is truly guilty of immorality, whether they have been taken advantage of. And again, that idea of defending the rights of the defenseless. If you have a woman who is taken out into the country and she is abused there, she's innocent. She is not uh, in any way, you know, she is, she's truly being taken advantage of. She is not guilty. She does not pay a penalty for that. But the man does, is what this legislation lays out. All I'm saying is that this passage demonstrates God's design for marriage and sexuality. You protect someone's sexuality. You protect someone's marriage. This passage does describe various divorce laws, but in all of it, it is about defending the integrity and the honesty and the honor of the, typically the woman who is being divorced. That there's not just this blanket, oh yeah, you can divorce and go live however you want, there is, God is protecting people's marriage and sexuality. God's design for marriage and sexuality is that all of us walk in holiness. And so for marriage, that would mean that you marry one man to one woman for a lifetime and you walk in holiness in that marriage. If you're single, it means that you walk in holiness while you're single. So whether uh, you're married or single, God has given our bodies dignity And I want to encourage you to uphold that dignity through the way that you use and protect God's glory in marriage and sexuality. One of the ways that our society, even conservatives in our society, not necessarily conservative Christians, but conservatives in other ways in our society, one of the ways that people in our society destroy the beauty of marriage and sexuality is through propagation of pornography. And I want to urge us as Christians to fight this sin in our own hearts, to fight it in our society, to fight it in our homes. Make it stinking difficult for someone in your home to get pornography. When you commit the sin of looking at pornography, repent and turn to the Lord and get help. Don't let this become a habit that then eats you from the inside and destroys your life and destroys the way that you view other people. Tim Challies, a Christian blogger, has an article on his website called Eight Sins You Commit Whenever You Look at Porn. It is an edifying article. I encourage you to read it and to give it to other people as a way of fighting that sin. But what I'm saying through this passage, what the Lord is saying through this passage, is that the way you use your sexuality demonstrates your allegiance to God or to the world, which is why 
Uh, I, we made the application last week that uh, Paul himself makes in 1 Corinthians 5, talking about a man who has his father's wife. It's talking about sexual sin and how should the church respond. Using the language of Deuteronomy, you respond through the mechanism, the biblical mechanism, the Jesus-given mechanism of church discipline. And it's not pleasant to have to do that, but it does tell the world and tell the sinner lost or stuck in sin what the Bible says about sexuality and sexual sin particularly. And so let me commend to you a couple of resources here along these lines. One would be one of our former members, Christopher Yuan, wrote this book, Holy Sexuality in the Gospel. I think the first half of this book is particularly outstanding. I, you know, There's nothing in the second half I don't recommend. I'm just saying when I flipped through it again in preparation for this sermon, I noticed most of my highlights were in the first half. Again, I think the second half is valuable as well. But Holy Sexuality in the Gospel by Christopher Yuan is an excellent resource along these lines. Of, and Christopher is a single man. And so the idea of that book is whether you are married or whether you are single, you have one responsibility is to live holy in your sexuality because of what the gospel is and says about this. Second resource, for those of you with young children or with young grandchildren or perhaps with nephews and nieces, anything along those lines is this book called Not If But When. And the subtitle is Preparing Our Children for Worldly Images. I'm reading through this with my boys for the second time, uh, particularly talking about uh, what sexuality is, how it's a good gift from God, but how our world distorts it. And it does not take long. It does not take effort to find worldly images. And so we need to protect our own hearts, protect our own families, protect our, our church family through this. And so not if, but when is an excellent resource along those lines. There's a, a verse in Deuteronomy 22, 5. I'm just going to touch on it. Actually, all I'm going to do is tell you this verse about essentially cross-dressing. If you want to go into that uh, vein, you want to study that to some extent, I want to commend to you a sermon by a Southern Baptist theologian named Jason DeRoshi. And I can just send you the link if you're interested in it later on. But it, <clears throat> The sermon from probably about eight years ago is called Confronting the Transgender Storm. It's an outstanding sermon helpfully taking this Old Testament law, reading it through the lens of the cross, and making applications to us as Christians. So, this whole concept of our unit of chapter 19 through 26 is about loving your neighbor. How do you do that? By valuing human life, protecting human life, protecting human sexuality. Third, value others' property. Value the property of other people. There are a lot of different ways that this passage lays this out. He talks about in chapter 22 again, and I point this out for a couple of reasons, uh, how to respond when your brother's ox or sheep is going astray or has fallen in a ditch. So remember there are other, like one of the Ten Commandments is to not covet your neighbor's ox. What about though if you don't covet an ox that's in a ditch, what should you do then? You should love your neighbor by taking care of his ox or his sheep. One of the reasons I point out this law about valuing others' property, is that even these specific Old Testament laws tell you you need to use your mind a little bit and apply these for yourself. In other words, God didn't say, now I'm going to list every animal you need to pull out of a ditch. Ox and sheep, full stop, that's it. The rest you can leave in the ditch. Clearly not. What if your mule has fallen in the ditch? You should pull that out too, okay? And so... Clearly, the Lord was urging his people 
to apply these principles to other situations. And we need to do this as well. So sometimes it's very easy for us to say, yeah, there's no verse in the Bible that says I can't do this, so I can do whatever I want. This ultimately comes down to why we're having a Sunday school class about the conscience. There's that plug. I'm giving you a weekly plug for this. But secondly, we need to be people who take the principles of the Word of God and apply them broadly in our hearts and in our homes for the glory of God. So value others' property. You see this uh, in the way that it deals with uh, ancient landmarks in chapter 19. What does that mean? It means there's a line that tells you this is where this guy's land ends and where this next guy's land starts. Why should you not move that landmark? Because it would be dishonest of you to take away someone else's part of their land because that's where they get their money from by selling their grains and so forth. You have uh, laws here about loans and about income and freedom that you have. And so one of the laws that, that Paul quotes is in chapter 24, I'm sorry, 25, verse 4, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Even there it's possible that Moses is essentially quoting a common law and saying, obviously, God's not just concerned about cows. And Paul understood that, which is why he quotes this in 1 uh, Timothy, if I can find it here, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. For the Scripture says, talking about uh, elders who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor, which means you would pay them, as well as supporting them in other ways. Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, for the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Huh. So Paul, where'd you get that idea? Uh, Deuteronomy 25.4. That's specifically where he gets that idea. And so I am so thankful for a congregation that understands the biblical precedent of this law. And what, uh, what the large section of this, large section of Deuteronomy is doing is encouraging you to, yes, honor your father and mother. Yes, don't commit adultery. Don't murder. But also, don't covet. Don't steal. It would be stealing to not allow a cow to eat while he walks through a field. It would be stealing to not allow a pastor to be paid for laboring in the Word of God, and so on. So that's an important application that Paul himself makes for us. So value others' property. And then fourth, so we have essentially protect human life, protect the dignity of marriage and sexuality, value others' property, and fourth, tell the truth. And there's a lot of different ways we could go about this because of the variety of ways that Moses describes this uh, important principle. But one that he does is in chapter 19, and I know I'm making you flip back and forth, but in chapter 19, verses 15 through 21, this is one of the reasons I summarize this with these four headings, is because Paul's not going in a really precise order here. He's kind of mixing and matching a little bit. Moses, I'm not sure if I said Paul there. Moses is doing this. But in chapter 19, verses 15 through, uh, yeah, verses 15 through 19, Moses talks through ensuring due process when someone is accused of a crime. So you can follow along here if you have your, your Bible open to this, but otherwise just listen. Chapter 19, verse 15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. This is important for a couple of different reasons. 
but it's applied throughout the New Testament in a couple different ways as well. So one of the ways it's applied is in that Matthew 18 passage on church discipline, you can't just say, mm, I saw that guy sin, we should excommunicate them. Don't let them be a part of our church anymore. No, there's, there's due process here. You have to walk through the right steps. This is why, you, why Jesus says to take a second person with you after you've confronted a sinner. Hopefully you don't even have to get to that point. The same is true in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5, the passage I just read, but the very next uh, sentence here, Paul says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, so if an elder is accused rightly of sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In other words, when you confront sin, you are helping other people turn away from sin and see the danger of sin. So the Lord gives us a good process for ensuring that you can't just make any accusation and it destroys somebody's life, basically. I'll tell you this story, and I, I maybe shouldn't just because of the limited context of it, but I'll essentially just tell you there was a man walking by our, our house a few weeks ago, and he was the last time I had talked to him, he's one of our neighbors, the last time I had talked to him, we had had a very long conversation. It really hadn't gone very well. And uh, he was saying some theologically aberrant statements that I had never heard anybody. I've, I've read theological books for, you know, close to, okay, not quite, I'm, I'm 39, so when I was going to say 30 years, I probably read theological books for 25 years. And I had never heard of this particular theological view that this guy was espousing. And I was kind of trying to point that out to him, and he didn't respond well very well, respond very well to the fact that I said, okay, you're, you're teaching false doctrine. Like, you, you're believing error here. This is really bad. You shouldn't believe this. Essentially, what he was saying was that certain New Testament books aren't true. That's really bad. That's heresy. That's false teaching. And I tried to point that out to him, and he did not respond well to it. So, that was, that was the day before Easter. About two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, he walked by my house again. It was the first time I had seen him since that long conversation. And I called out, hey, by name, and he just goes, rah, rah, rah. and I couldn't hear what he said. So I went up closer. I said, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear what you said. Rah, rah, rah. So I went right up to him. I said, I'm sorry. I, I used his name. I said, I'm really sorry. I can't hear what you're saying. He goes, false teacher. And I was like, me? Like, like I just wasn't sure what he was saying. And he goes, yes. Or, yeah, he didn't even say yes, he just, he just nodded. He goes, false teacher. And I said, okay, see ya. Like, this is not going to be a helpful conversation. But let's assume for a second, okay, I tell you the whole story to say, let's assume that he's a member of our church. How should we handle that? He should get somebody else. Ideally, he'd get Clayton. Ideally, he'd get a, another member who's been here for a while who kind of knows what our church teaches and things like this really well. And then you need to come and approach me and see if I actually am a false teacher because I am not above saying something wrong. Anytime I open my mouth, I can say something wrong. So I am so glad the Lord gives us due process so that we can correct error, so that we can approach false teaching in a right way. But if this guy were a member and he called me a false teacher and he didn't have somebody else to back it up, well, now he's outside of the bounds of the Word of God. So that's the whole reason I tell you that story, is that there is a right way to approach anybody, whether they're in church leadership or not. And I do pray, I truly pray, that when I am wrong, 
not if I'm wrong, when I am wrong, I hope it's super rare, I hope I never am, but when I am wrong, I hope that when you come to me, I will be a humble, approachable person. I truly want to be that kind of elder. I believe Clayton absolutely would say the same thing. And so, please, if I say something that makes you scratch your head and be like, I just don't think that's right, biblically, let's talk about it. And I hope I'll be super easily and treatable to talk about that. But all of this is under the, the heading of tell the truth. Sometimes we're not sure if somebody's telling the truth or not, so you get a second or a third witness to help with that. But some of the applications for this, and all I'm saying is there are sections in here about vows, about how to respond to God's blessings and being honest about all of that. But one of the ways to apply this is to pay a fair wage. If you're a boss of somebody else, you get to decide how much somebody gets paid. I want to urge you to pay a fair wage. You are a Christian. You are representing God. You're representing the glory of Christ by the way that you are uh, employing other people. Sell a good product. That's part of telling the truth. Refuse to lie even when it's to your benefit and then raise your children to tell the truth as well. Fight against this concept that is so prevalent in our society today that you should lie when it makes your life easier, when it gets you some kind of benefit at the end of the day. As I mentioned, Paul quotes from the book of Deuteronomy over and over again. What he does is he takes the law of Moses, the Old Testament law, and on the other side of the cross, he calls it the law of Christ. And this is what he describes in Romans 14. I just want to read this section to you. Romans 14, that is essentially taking what we just talked about today and applying it through the cross. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. These are the ones we covered in the passage today. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. When I was in Australia in 2005, I'd been there for about three weeks. I'd lived with a couple different families doing a church internship there. And because it was on the other side of the world, they were putting me up, uh, giving me housing. I was staying with different families in the church. By this time, I had stayed with... um, a married couple, and then for about a week or so, I've been staying with a single guy. And then the, uh, the pastor of the church, or the, the assistant pastor, but the one that I was working most closely with, took me out to Baskin-Robbins. They have that in Australia as well. And we sat down on the steps of Baskin-Robbins, and we're sitting there talking. And he, he starts telling me things that he's heard from my hosts about me. Things like, when they're cooking dinner, you're sitting on the couch reading. Shocking, I know. Or... Uh, after dinner, you're not helping with the dishes. And he kind of like listed out like three or four examples. And I just thought like, oh my goodness. Like, I didn't even realize I was being selfish. I was loving myself, not loving my neighbor. In this case, it would be the people I was living with. And he pointed out three or four different specific ways. And it was mortifying, like where you can feel your face flushing. Like, I didn't realize how I was coming across. I didn't realize I was being selfish. I didn't realize I was not loving my neighbor. No one had ever, you know, given me evidence of me being selfish, except for my siblings, and they don't really count. So this was, like, very, very significant. But what I'm saying is we need people in the church who are looking to love their neighbor, Maybe that means love them by telling them the truth, like you are being selfish, which is why I prayed that we would have the mind of Christ, Philippians 2, that we would look on the interests of others rather than our own needs. God has made you his holy people. Let me just summarize 
Deuteronomy in like three sentences. God has made you His holy people. He's called you then to walk in His ways. One of the clearest ways you walk in His ways is by loving your neighbor. And so I want to urge you, congregation, to do that by the grace of God, by the help of the Holy Spirit, for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, we can be overwhelmed because we are confronted with our own sinfulness, with the ways that we're so selfish and we're so um, unaware of how we carry ourselves and how we talk. But we pray that this passage would be used by your Spirit to, give, to help us give thanks for Christ, who himself fulfilled the law for us, because we could never keep these commands perfectly. We thank you that he did. We rest on his perfect work. We repent of the ways we have loved ourselves rather than our neighbor. And we pray for grace to walk in all your ways all the days of our lives. In Christ's name, amen.